1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your filthy mitts on a physical, collectible copy of your own. And I do mean filthy mitts. Like, wash your hands. Yeah, dirty, grubby fingers. Keep them off of that pristine magazine. Thank you. Disgusting, frankly. Uh, We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, uh, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rum! Bad rum! Bad rum! see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's... Oh, fuck. I just forgot my name for a second. <laughs> Your name's Fuck. Leave, leave that in. Um, hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. So this week is our big uh, Thanksgiving show, as, as you know. And to mark the occasion, we brought in two guests who we've been wanting on the KingCast ever since uh, we started doing this show. Mm. It, it took a minute for uh, planets and schedules to align, but we're finally on the same page and are very hyped to be speaking with these gentlemen today. You'll know them as the directorial duo behind a string of excellent horror films, including Spring, The Endless, Synchronic, as well as for their contributions to uh, Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone, VHS Viral, and this year's Moon Knight series over on Disney+. Plus. But they're here today promoting their latest feature, Something in the Dirt, which should be available on digital by the time you hear this episode, as well as to discuss one of the creepiest those little craftian stories mm. in the King Canon, Night Shifts, Jerusalem's Lot. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? So good. So, so good. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> you. Uh, it seems like something in, the, something in the Dirt's been playing festivals. Uh, we caught it at uh, Fantastic Fest, and um, I think it played Beyond Fest, too. Response is really strong. This one's a little, even by your standards, I think it's a little weirder than some of the other ones. Are you are you excited that people have embraced it as much as they have? Yeah, I mean, I think we've only ever pretty much uh, had good feedback when we're at our weirdest, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we yeah. only get rewarded for being weird. Yeah, if we and actually, and it also goes the other way around. As soon as we kind of like go into the mainstream, people are like, "Ah, oh, you lost your way, haven't you?" You know. <laughs> so, so uh so we're we're just getting bolder and bolder with just like letting it all hang out um at a certain point that'll that'll do us dirty but something in the dirt is without a doubt our strangest something you guys do exceptionally well is um cosmic horror and that is i think one of the more difficult flavors to translate for the big screen you know uh particularly you know, in any like Lovecraft adaptation you might have seen, but you guys seem to have a really good handle on how to make that 
as unsettling as it is on the page and as unknowable and sort of like like awe inspiring is is a thing that uh, like a, a part of pulling off cosmic horror that um i think a lot of people just don't stick the landing on that particular element and and y'all do so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your approach to that and why why do you think you're so good at it i think it all starts with um literally not knowing what cosmic horror was yeah like we just <laughs> we didn't know that's what we were doing we we really uh, yeah 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 in fact i uh, think we'd heard the term yeah we didn't i'd say for our first feature resolution or in our second feature spring those were two where we definitely didn't know what cosmic horror was and also to add to that we actually had never read hp lovecraft and um, <laughs> someone, someone around that time said to us, this is something interesting. They're like, oh, well, so you haven't read any H.P. Lovecraft? We're like, no, really. And they're like, well, have you read like Stephen King or like Alan Moore? We're like, yeah, I've read a lot of that. They're like, well, then you kind of have read Lovecraft because they read it. <laughs> and, and they use a lot of those uh, sometimes more, more, more uh, conspicuously than others. They, they use some of the elements of, uh, of Lovecraft. I remember kind of bristling at it too when they said that, implying that we'd stolen our ideas from someone we'd never read. And we're like, hey, that's not fair. Um, we stole that, our ideas from people we have read. Get yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, was this thing where they're like, well, you must have read Lovecraft. We're like, no, we, we made all this up. And then we realized that actually, no, we, we, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. We just didn't know what shoulders exactly they were. Um, well, that's even more impressive though. Like you, I mean... Presumably you have read a little Lovecraft or Cosmic Horror now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and you've you've seen some of the adaptations, I assume, right? With probably yeah. all of them that we could. I, I mean, are we talking Stephen King or of Cosmic uh, Horror stuff? Cosmic, cosmic Horror stuff. I, what I'm kind of getting at is, like, do you agree that it's a hard thing to, to translate to film, given how many have come before and not been able to stick that landing? It's, I don't think we particularly... I may be trying to get you to argue my point for me. I think it's just Justin and I don't really bang our head against the wall thinking, how are we going to translate this this idea visually? Right. Uh, because it's it's it goes back to what Justin was saying, where we didn't even know we were in that genre, and, and it was kind of in, intrinsic to us. Like that That's the most interesting idea in the room for us. Um, but I do think that especially when it comes to Lovecraft, there was this idea of something like, oh, if you look at it, it causes you to become insane. Mm -hmm. And of course, you cannot translate visually. It's impossible. Um, and if you do, you can do really well, but it will never cause the viewer to go insane. Right. Um, and uh, and so a lot of the ways that that ended up getting translated is just tentacles, slimy tentacles. And, you know, <laughs> and, um, and I get that. You know, that that's also kind of comes back to the Cthulhu mythos a little bit. But um, but our, our stuff was never really that much about the tentacles. It was more about dimensional rifts. Yes, the, uh, the unknowability. Of yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think y'all are doing great on that, on that front at any rate. And uh, I, I guess uh, maybe what I should be asking here is, you know, if, you're, if you came to this unintentionally... Um, what is it that frightens you? Like, what do you, what do you, if you're putting together a scene, you know, if you're writing it or, you know, filming it, what are you trying to convey? Like, is it, 
is it that unknowability or is it, you know, um, I don't know. Are you more interested in like dimensional stuff? I don't know if I'm fucking pulling this off at all. (laughs) (laughs) I know Um, where you're going. I can, I get where you're going, Scott. We do spend a lot of time trying to come sort of invent these mythologies that, Mm -hmm. that um, even if one would call them exclusively supernatural or otherworldly, for whatever reason, they operate in a way that we could maybe just barely conceivably ourselves see them existing in the real world. And sometimes that's via a, um, um, some science fiction explanation or whatever, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but that, uh, that I don't know, to, give, to give an example of how, how my brain works when coming up with these things is that I was raised atheist. And so I'm raised atheist. And so there is no, there is no, uh, obviously there's no God in, or, or anything in the afterlife or anything like that in the, right. in the way my family practiced their um, lack of spirituality. Hmm. So when you're trying to come up with something like a mythological creature, it's hard to go to like vampires because uh, traditionally they're, you know, they're afraid of uh, the, the Holy Cross and all these right. things. Me personally just don't mean much. Right. Ghosts, for example, doesn't quite make sense to me because I was taught people don't have disembodied spirits. So ghost doesn't quite make sense. But if you look at the way the, um, what we call the Arcadian, you look at the way that operates in resolution and the endless, this sort of this deity that lives out there, it could be there. Maybe just no one knows it. And it is essentially, um, uh, using media to communicate with people in these vague ways while be keeping them imprisoned in these, these sort of temporal loops for whatever reason, as insane as that sounds, that registered as something like just maybe, just maybe that exists and it's out there. <laughs> right. um, whereas all, whereas everything else I said prior is like I've already been told that's not real. Yeah, right. Well, I, I get, I realize this. We were talking a lot about the concept of um, speculative fiction, which is one of my favorite genres in mm-hmm. making spring. And the thing is, is what we're making is not speculative fiction in the traditional term. We're normally. I don't know how you'd describe it, but it's normally like, oh, it's like our world, but there's just one little um, scientific difference. Mm. Normally, speculative fiction is sci-fi. Um, ours, it, our, our stuff has, it's kind of like that, weirdly. Like, there's just, it's our world, but one little difference. Um, but somehow, it doesn't seem to be commenting as much on, like, the technology that, that, that it that normally speculative fiction does, but mm-hmm. it is still a, kind of that, like, what if a woman's body could metabolize their own embryonic stem cells? You know, what if a, uh, what if out in this weird little pocket of San Diego, there was just this one little thing for a few miles radius. Right. Um, the, the, what if still does kind of place us in that category. Hmm. Well, and I think that like, I think a lot of what I think Scott's getting at is, is tone and tone yeah. is, is such a very, specific because you can have the most uh outlandish horror idea but if you film it in you know bright white overhead fluorescent lights or something you know it's not gonna land there's there's something in the magic in translating uh, a horrific idea visually that you know that equals tone somehow and that's something that i always get really fascinated by when you see somebody like carpenter in his heyday where you can take something like halloween and then something like the fog and then something like say big trouble in little China and mm-hmm. they're all perfect in their tones and they're all wholly unique in their tones. You know um, I don't know. There's just something in there. And I, I think what uh, 
you know, we talk a lot about, especially when it comes to cosmic horror, is that it is a very specific feeling of like under the skin dread that you get when you mm-hmm. totally. read a great HP Lovecraft story or you read a great riff on Lovecraft or um, see a good movie like, you know, in the mouth of madness, speaking of Carpenter has a lot of that elements in it, even though it's not technically um, an HP Lovecraft style movie. I mean, it is it's a style movie, but it's not an HP Lovecraft movie, but it's like a very accurate cosmic horror feel. Um, so is that something you guys focus on with your work? Is it like kind of honing that tone? Uh, is that something that's like on the forefront of your mind or is that something that you just feel like comes naturally as you're uh, in production? We try to, I mean, I think it's especially when we're, when we're scoring and sound designing, yeah. we try to aim as hard as we can to make the movie feel frightening, frightening in a sense of, as defined by being a sense of dread, a sense of unease through the whole right. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is usually just quieting it down, mm. but, um, but I think especially something in the dirt, Jimmy definitely has some pieces of score that, that push it a lot further than some of our prior works have. Yeah, uh, for for anyone who's un, unfamiliar or just hearing about something in the dirt, which I would be surprised with from our audience, uh, could you could you talk a little bit about the plot? Like, what are people getting into here? Oh, <clears throat> yes. Um, so, something in the dirt is about these two uh, new neighbors. One of them has just moved in, um, and uh, while they're moving, help while one is helping the other move into new apartment they witness something impossible something seemingly supernatural and instead of running away from it and it becoming essentially a haunted house story or anything like that uh they decide to document it in order to hopefully make something like a netflix documentary and um and give some meaning and maybe some fame and fortune to their lives that they uh, feel like that has kind of passed them by <laughs> right and of course this um it all goes terribly wrong. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to say it. But it's kind of a, it, it's a movie, but it also has a, a, a faux documentary aspect to it within the movie, and um, and it's a, a bit like House of Leaves in that way, you know, where there's kind of Very a mixed much. media feel mm-hmm. to the whole thing. Um, but also bizarrely, and you're talking, it's fun that you talk about tone. Um, but this one could probably be most most clearly categorized as a comedy as well. Hmm. Uh, compared to our other films. I I definitely agree with that. And you take some really, you know, a, a part a part of what's really funny about the two characters is the the shots that you're kind of taking it, like influencer culture or like hmm. digital media sort of people that like realize like, oh, I got a, I got a phone camera now. Like, and I can really dive in and get obsessed over this thing. And maybe that will catch on with uh other people i i enjoy seeing uh um that type getting the the piss taken out of them a little bit (laughs) we we tried we do think it's not a particularly timeless idea so we didn't really dive too (laughs) hard into that but um but there's definitely a shot or two taken um and by the way at our own expense as well yeah there's definitely a big mirror held up to filmmakers um not not in exactly our our stripe but there's there's an idea there there's a uh, there is an element to documenting something that in, implies your own self-importance mm. there's I another think that, okay. know, i think well i was gonna say that i think that you know a lot of a lot of your films if not all of them incorporate some level of humor to them i i don't know that you can categorize um any of them as maybe maybe something in the dirt as like a horror comedy 
um, but not the others, but they, they, but they do contain it. And I think it goes a long way towards grounding the characters and making the world that might be one step off from our own feel more real, which I think only serves to make the, you know, sinister undertones that might be unfolding um, pop even harder, if that makes sense. You know, like these, the, your characters interact with each other. They have inside jokes. They, they um, break each other's balls, stuff like that. Um, I think that, I think that really works as a, a way to endear your, you know, uh, an audience to your characters, mm. which is something, you know, Stephen King is also big on, mm. you know, like the, the idea of the utterly ordinary people who are very recognizable as, as human beings, you know, they have, you know, uh, they have their own senses of humor. They have their own goals and wants and needs or whatever, but you know, they've just run up against some sort of supernatural force. Uh, Something, something y'all have in common, I think, a, a talent for that. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, we we strive with every movie to to uh, to make the characters feel less like characters, more like people. Right. Yes. Like that, hopefully, you finish the movie and, and you don't go like, yeah, the characters. Uh, it's sort of like a character from this movie and this movie. That hopefully they walk out and they go, that reminded me of this person I worked with uh, <laughs> at, at, a, at a liquor store ten years ago. Um, Stephen King, I just realized, is fighting an uphill battle nowadays because there is now an archetype of the Stephen King character, which he himself invented. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, Yeah. the blue collar, every man, every woman. Yeah. Yeah. What's crazy though is I I remember when I was reading The Stand, uh, I it hit me that he wrote this before you could just like if you wanted to look up um, specific lived-in feeling information about being an auto mechanic. Mm. That's a trip to the library. <laughs> right. you know, that's, that's, and, and a long trip to the library, you know, and maybe maybe many things. Whereas now we can just insert that stuff like via, via 30 minutes on Wikipedia and suddenly we at least <laughs> right. can use the verbiage of an expert. And his mind, he does that for every single character right. in these giant not anthological um, uh, ensemble pieces. Right. And it's, uh, it's just the most impressive thing, the way his mind is able to make specific information for so many people. And he can be totally wrong in it, but it sounds right. So it doesn't matter. Right. Oh, I've never double checked him. I assume. (laughs) Yeah. He he always has like a preface. It could all be bullshit for all I know, but it works. He does like an author's note at the end of most of his books. And so if you read something like 112263, like he had a, a, an actual research assistant for that one. Uh, uh, but like in that he goes, yeah, so, you know, a lot of the shit I just made up though. So if it's wrong, blame me, not them. It's just me not wanting, wanting to dig through all the information they gave me. Um, so I just have to imagine that goes back to when, you know, the early days when he didn't have a research assistant for some of his books mm-hmm. you know, where it's just like, no, I'm just gonna, this sounds right. So that's all that matters. It's funny. It reminds me of the opposite of, uh, in some ways, it's the opposite of Alan Moore, which is one of our other favorite, mm. favorite minds of all time, where he just you know, a third of his books are footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of House of Leaves. Yeah. Um, shit. yeah. <clears throat> I guess this is a, a, a good time to get y'all's Stephen King origin stories. Right. Um, We're dancing around or, it already. Yeah. 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 Uh, whichever order y'all, y'all want to go in. Um, is one of you a bigger King fan than the other? I don't think so. I think it's, so. it's about equal. Yeah. Equal. All right. Um, Do you believe that in your heart or are you just saying that <laughs> the microphone? No, I, 
I think I believe it with my, I think I believe in my heart. Yeah, hold on. Okay, I'm checking with my heart real quick. <laughs> no, we're good. We're good. Um, the, uh, my, this is Justin and my, my introduction to Stephen King was that, uh, basically my parents had, uh, a son, uh, 10 or 11 years prior to when I was born and they were very young. They, they, I think my mom was 15 and my dad was 16. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, they, the, the, they were kind of pressured, but ended up giving the, the baby up for adoption and he had a different family. But when he turned 18, 18 years later, he came and he contacted, uh, my family, my mom, my dad, and me, and they, they started to develop a, a relationship and he came and he actually came and lived with us when he was 18 for a little while. And when he came to live with us, he came with a stack of Stephen King books. He was a huge mm. Stephen King fan. I'm sorry he, to interrupt. How old are you at this time? I am seven, seven years oh, old. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> I'm seven years old and, uh, he's moving in. He's 18. He comes with this stack of Stephen King books. He had, uh, Tommy knockers, uh, Salem's lot, the stand. Um, so only the big ones. He only cared about the, the <laughs> he was, he was working yeah, out. Gi- he was just working out yeah. the move. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. They were gigantic. Um, there was more than that. And I, and so he came and so I, uh, late at night I would, I was fascinated by him. So I put on his music. He had these mixtapes of like, uh, alternative rock from around the time. Hmm. And, um, Things like Echo and the Bunny Man. Basically, it was like the soundtrack mm. to Donnie Darko, basically. <laughs> right. um, but uh, I put on that and just read Stephen King books. And the first one I read was uh, Salem's Lot. And that was my, my introduction to Stephen King, which to a, to a seven-year-old is a very subversive take on the haunted house story. <laughs> <laughs> seven-year-old you was just like, oh, interesting. This isn't in a gothic castle. No, this is... Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Vampires? Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, my, my story is, uh, this is Aaron's voice. Um, my family would, uh, during the summer, we had, we had these friends who had this really cool, very rustic cabin in Tennessee. And, um, and so, uh, a lot of summers we would go there and I was there with my cousin and I overheard a conversation. I was probably seven or so as well. I, I couldn't, couldn't quite tell you. Um, but I know I was very young because of what's going to come next is, he was, my cousin Jonathan was describing to my mom the plot of a book. And he was saying, um, he's saying like, yeah, there's this, it's a, he's a cowboy, but it takes place in a world after Alex. <laughs> like, like the, there was some kind of an apocalypse. So like all of our songs still exist, but some of our buildings still exist, but, but it's actually more of a Western now. Everything's kind of blown over. The phrase they use, the world has moved on. Mm. And, um, and, it, and he kind of, he described the plot of, uh, of just the first book, The Gunslinger. And, uh, and I was so fascinated and I asked my mom if I could read that. And she said, oh, it's, you're a little too young for that right now. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I was too young for Stephen King at that time. I cannot tell you what my first Stephen King book was. I just remember hearing that plot and thinking, that's the coolest thing I've ever thought of. Or, ever, ever. <laughs> and then, and then, um, And then a few years later, when I was old enough, I did read... Uh, all of the Dark Tower that was out at the time mm-hmm. and Wizarding Glass for a very long time was my absolute favorite book in the universe. I mm-hmm. read that book. I just skipped the first three, which I loved just to reread Wizarding Glass. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, of course, you know, then, then the new books started coming out, which was e- even more exciting. So I was like a 
very big fan um, a while back, but I also admit that I haven't read. Um, I still have a huge amount of King that I haven't read. I, I think yeah. it was like I was I was just very obsessed with the Dark Tower, but I've you know I've read a, you know a, a good good chunk of his his more famous works. Right. Well, well we're, I think we're, we're well met because we're also of the generation where we had to wait right. in yeah. between the books. You know, yeah. so yeah. was Wizard and Gla- was Wizard and Glass already out when you started yeah. Dark Tower? Uh, yes, I believe it was, or it, it was just coming out, and that might have been what started me reading the Dark mm. Tower. Was like, oh, that book that I that it, that Jonathan was talking about. Ah, um, right on. I see. Yeah. I seem to kind of remember something like that. Let me let me see what the release date on that was. Yeah, and there was I, like right? fucking six years in between Wastelands and Wizard and Glass. An interminable yeah, period. 97. Yeah, I, I think it, Wizard and Glass coming out is probably what started me reading mm. uh, Gunslinger. Also, I agree with you. I think it's the best written of all of them. I don't know it's my if it's my favorite, which like flip-flops between... Wastelands and Drawing of the Three and that maybe because I just read them the most. Mm. You know, I read and reread those motherfuckers like over and over again waiting for Wizard and Glass. So, you know, I may be biased in that, but I do think that no matter what, it's the best written installment. Yeah. Without a doubt, one of the reasons I am a filmmaker is because I wanted to make Dark Tower. <laughs> and want to make the Dark Tower. That's not, but that's every filmmaker nowadays. So. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe someone will get a shot, you know, do you think, do you think it needs to be a series of movies or like you think a series, like a television series? Probably needs a television series. Yeah. It's probably the best. Something very decompressed. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it, I mean, it could be seven extremely long movies, like, like extended right. edition Lord of the Rings style, but TV series seems like it makes the most sense. Yeah. Just, just in you. Oh, sorry. Like you, you read them too. Then I take it. No, I'm actually. This is sacrilege. I feel really bad about this. So I've I've actually read quite a bit of Stephen King. Uh, I've read a lot of Stephen King between the ages of seven and roughly ten. That's that's my peak years. Read a lot. Of read on. Um, and unfortunately, as much as I enjoyed the Gunslinger, I only got for the Dark Tower series. I've only gotten through uh, the Drawing of the Three. Right Which, on. by the way, every time I think about the drawing of the three, if it were a movie that existed, it it's like definitely like an Abel Ferrer movie in the eighties. Right? Like, <laughs> like, like it would, that's like the yeah. best version well, all of that, that story. All, when that gritty, it, all the gritty New York Ferrer. shit. Yeah, yeah. Even the stuff that's not because Eddie's Eddie's storyline I think takes place in the eighties, but even the other stuff reads a little all him, a little. Uh, Abel Ferrer is a really good adjective for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got the you got the junky, you know, view of the city from Eddie's yeah. point of view. You've got the yeah. the racial point of view on the city, thanks yeah. to you yeah. know Detta Odetta, and then you get the fucking the, the ultra able Ferrera version of the city yeah. with with Jack Mort. Mort. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's you're absolutely right in that. Well, even sure. though, yeah, those moments where like uh, where Roland's playing with the trying to avoid the cops and to save the cops' life and 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 all that in the gun store, yeah, all that is is very, very gritty. We've had conversations on the show before about how cool it would be if you uh, like when I was a kid because I was a movie kid who happened to read. I wasn't like a book kid that just happened to like movies, right? So I I visually pictured everything I read and uh, drawing of the three. Like I read the the 60s Detta Odetta stuff in like a like early late 50s early 60s Technicolor you know view it was like widescreen Technicolor look like My Fair Lady or something right yeah. um 
and then you know i i read the the other the, the other stuff the 80s stuff is like scarface or whatever you know so it was it, yeah no it, it's really interesting how you know how movies kind of impacted my visual thinking of the dark tower when i was reading it yeah well this might be a good transition actually into our topic at hand because one thing that the dark tower firmly established uh for king as an author is his just ability to like expand and fold in all of his works into one story Mm -hmm. and he kind of became known for the shared universe thing before that was a popular idea um and Jerusalem's Lot, I think, might be the very first instance of it because I think he in his work, you mean? In his work, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because this this was okay. written and published in seventy eight, which was I think what uh, just a year or two after Salem's Lot came out, and he was like, "All right, I'm going to give you a prequel. I'm going to tell well, you the history of of this town and the reason why vampires are attracted to it." You know, and uh, uh, I don't know. I find it very fascinating, and uh, and I'm really glad you picked this because uh, you know, little hint. Our next week's episode is actually Salem's Lot, so this is a perfect yeah. one to Whoa. punch. Did, so here's a here's a question. So uh, these are both these stories from Night Shift or Graveyard Shift. I can't remember. This is Night Shift. Yeah. Night Shift, right? Yeah. Um, so so it's not just Jerusalem's Road that he revisits the universe of. It's also uh, uh, or sorry, it's not Jerusalem's Lot. It's also One for the Road, right? There's a short story yes. in the same book called One for the Road that takes yes. place directly mm-hmm. after the events of Jerusalem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wonder so which one of those he wrote first, or if it was just that's a, he's going to book, he's going to write bookend short stories. Yeah, if he did around the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's question. a great question because in that one short story collection, he does a, a prequel and a sequel to Salem's Lot. And both of them are great. Like uh, One for the Road is is in for my money, like I think the creepiest of. Uh, uh, of the Salem's lot, I guess the modern era, you know, I guess uh, <coughs> Jerusalem's lot's creepy in its, in its own unique way, but there's just something about the imagery of the, the little vampire girl, like lulling the would be rescuer in the snow that, that like just really gets under my skin. There's uh, there's also, there's this thing that I was talking to Aaron about. Um, I just handed Aaron uh, Alan Moore. I think it's basically Alan Moore's last sort of omnibus big graphic novel. It's called Providence. Providence is an ex like an exploration of HP Lovecraft in a huge way. Um, to the point that I hope this isn't spoiling anything for anyone reading it, there is eventually an actual appearance by HP Lovecraft. The way in which the character talks, which apparently Alan Moore heavily researched how how HP Lovecraft spoke, it's so similar to uh, to the voice of, I believe it's Charles mm. in my notes. Charles Boone. Yeah, Charles Charles Boone in right. Jerusalem's Lot. The, the that first person <laughs> voice, the first person <laughs> voice is so hey, look at that. so. We got a cameo by by a cameo. By yeah. That's my um, dog Rooster. Sorry guys. Don't right. say hi Rooster. Hi Rooster. Hi Rooster. <laughs> He's not saying hi back. So we've got a story here of an ancient evil in New England with an appearance by slime, a feeling of unease, something that's so like terrifying it'll drive you mad. Um, it's even there's even language using it that sounds like the language used in Lovecraft. The, the sort of supernatural language. The voice of Lovecraft himself is very similar to Charles Boone. And with all of this, it just kind of seems like this, this might be the most uh, very consciously Lovecraft thing Stephen mm-hmm. King has done. I, I also, I was, I was, uh, I realized, I, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I, I was just reading it and I was like, this just seems really familiar. And I reread uh, the synopsis of the Dunnage Horror 
And I think it's mm. just the Denator. I think well, it's yeah. exactly and the, the Denator. And there's also, you know, the rats in the wall yeah. reference that's, is that's like major. Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. it's, it, it, you're right that it is explicitly like a Lovecraftian story. So I have no trouble believing that like this dude's yeah, general speaking voice was right in li- line with Charles Boone's. But um, I mean, even that, that, um, that book is a Lovecraft. It's basically, I yeah, mean, yeah. Metaphor, it's a Necronomicon, but I think Lovecraft actually mentions the book yeah. somewhere. Yeah. The, this the, is the King like straight mysterious? up stepping into Lovecraft's yeah. sandbox and being like, I'm going to play with some of your toys. Is that yeah, it's, cool? It's basically a, I, I, we did not, I don't think either of us knew this before starting it, but we didn't know that he's like, I'll do a prequel to Salem's Lot and it will be a pastiche of a HP Lovecraft story. Mm. But, and it, it is. It's not even like a little bit. It's 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 a lot bit, <laughs> which is very <laughs> cool to discover. Yeah, it, I, I have a feeling because this is, I mean, keep in mind, we're only a few years out from King having just made his living as an English teacher, right? And so I I feel like a lot of these like late seventies stories, especially, is him like, okay, now I'm gonna do my Ray Bradbury, now I'm gonna do my HP Lovecraft, now I'm gonna do you know, I'm playing in all these other author sandboxes. Not saying he doesn't have his own unique voice in it, but to me that feels like a very young writer, you know, on the rise being excited to play with, you know, yeah, uh, different totally. kinds of narrative toys, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I can't I, I could be wrong, but I, I can't think of a a ton of instances actually prove me wrong on this guys. I can't think of a ton of instances of Stephen King writing in the first person mm. Um, mm. And, and in the first person as not, not as an omniscient author as Stephen King, but as a character. Mm. You mean more of, like, so like an epistolary of, thing. Yeah. The, yeah, the writing is letters. Case where it's like, yeah, and, oh, it's yeah. By virtue of it being this, these journal entries. That's um, true. He's That's writing true. as a different character in the first person. It only sells the Lovecraft, you know, tone of it even further. I mean, there's all the Easter eggs in there, but that that's definitely a Lovecraft thing. And his other, I think King's other m- most explicitly Lovecraft thing is uh, Crouch End, the yes. story from uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which I will bring up every chance <laughs> I fucking get on the show because it's... Yeah, it, what's it's my... Crouch End? Can you fill us in? Sorry. Oh, man. It's... Maybe, it, right, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah you did it now. This is my favorite King short story. Actually, you know what? Y'all would be perfect to do an adaptation of this. I'm going to put incept that idea into your head. But <laughs> it's it's told from the point of view of two cops who have just gotten they're living in Crouch End, London, uh, which we learn is basically a very cursed place. In fact, like a place that resides on top of a. A membranous uh, division between our world and another dimension, which is basically like a, a thin place kind yeah, of thing. Th- yeah, it, it's absolutely a, like a thinny from the Dark Tower. Um, he describes it as like a leather ball, and it's like worn down in one place where what's inside the ball and outside the ball are like this close to touching, so sometimes they bleed over into one another. Anyway, these cops have just gotten done interviewing this woman who she sort of drives the story by because it goes into a flashback of her explaining that she and her husband were traveling into Crouch End and in the process like veered into that other world and so they encounter all kinds of fucking uh, Lovecraftian shit on uh, like along their way 
you know, and there are again explicit Lovecraft references in there, like Nyarlathotep and 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 that kind of Shagath thing. Shagath and yeah, yeah Shagath. Um, there's a, you know, there's even some big tentacles in there, um, and it is just it, it is fucking terrifying. The Tim Curry reads the audio version of it that came out, <laughs> oh, that's and good. it is oh, it's if. If, if you've never read Crouch End, like that would be my suggestion. Like, go seek out that audiobook, like uh, narration of it, and you'll be a fucking fan for life. But yeah, it's got to be less than an hour, right? So yeah, it's got to be yeah. But you, it's you, it's fantastic. Do you just own a bunch of Crouch End stock, and that's what you're doing mm-hmm. here? No, I wish. That no, revival. We, I wish we had stock in revival. Yeah, We've sold a say, lot we got, of copies we got of our, our shit. We got our, our whole crypto wallet in revival at the moment. So <laughs> yeah. we're gonna start doing <laughs> NFTs. King cast <laughs> NFTs. Yeah. yeah, revival's also a very Lovecraftian uh story too. I mean it's it's more of a Frankenstein story, but it, it hits into that cosmic horror dread. Oh, oh yeah. I really I, I really like that one a lot. I it weirdly is just one of those that didn't stick with me, but I didn't but it wasn't it wasn't a problem while reading, you know. Mm. I really did want to keep on picking it up. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's a that's it's nice. It felt like he was he was in in full form, you yeah, know, for sure. It it felt he was looking like like that revival feels like him saying, "I've heard your little complaints about me not sticking the ending on my novels." <laughs> So I'm going to fucking hit you with an uppercut <laughs> and send you into like a, an existential <laughs> spiral with, you know, this. The, yeah, we try not to spoil the ending of a revival on, on the show either. So I can't say what it is. But like, yeah, that one fucked me up after mm-hmm. I read it. And uh, I, th- I think it's his scariest thing since Pet Cemetery. So we have long championed that that book on this program particular show it it also feels like the redheaded stepchild of stephen king novels too it's like it's just one that nobody talks about that is great you know Uh, i think that'll change if somebody gets to make it mike flanagan was trying to get uh, an Mm -hmm. adaptation off the ground he let us read the script it's it's great but that's a tough one to sell for for any studio if you're gonna keep that ending intact you're gonna run into the same problems darabont had with his ending for the mist you know it's like you right people just aren't gonna want to throw money at it um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. for for those who uh, haven't read uh, Jerusalem's Lot, would one of you be willing to uh, lay out the the general plot for this thing? What? Oh, us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, sorry. Um, so it it's a uh, it's a short story within Night Shift, and a man named Charles Boone. Charles Boone. Yep. Charles, Charles Boone, Boone. is uh, uh, writing letters to his friend Bones. And so each chapter starts with "Dear Bones," <laughs> and he is from he is Star just, Trek. It, yeah, <laughs> he's just been <laughs> to a a, uh, uh, a a house a house that's a bit infamous that to to the town around it um, uh, that has that is basically the house of his family legacy. Yeah, um, which he doesn't know a ton about, but he will learn through the otherworldly happenings of this house. And then, and then also, um, uh, ah, ah, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that happened ah, too. He, just barked at a, he barked viciously at a corner. <laughs> well, I think that's Bones coming into. That's Bones. To try it's to literally DeForest Kelly's ghost is <laughs> yes. coming into the room. Uh, uh, comes to find that the nearby town of Jerusalem. Ah, with- oh my goodness. 
uh, has some sort of um, occult, very dark history, mm. mystery uh, linked to this house that is the house of his family legacy. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah. Yeah. Leads yeah. A mystery. I don't know if a detail matters if just Jerusalem's lot is completely abandoned. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, but that's, yeah. Is, it, is that where we leave it? Or sure. I mean, yeah, we can oh. we can uh, go further into the plot as we're discussing the thing. But yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's one of those like, it's very much like Dracula. It's set up like Dracula as this guy's just, no, nah, here I am. I'm walking into this town and this is, it's abandoned. What's going on here? And the locals, there's local whisperings of this, you know, uh, cursed place. You know, he, he's writing it a lot as much as it's an H.P. Lovecraft nod you know i think he's also been on record to saying that he's a huge huge fan of of dracula as a novel and so i think he even though he's using an hp lovecraft trick of using the letters i think if i were to guess i'd say that this um uh this what did you call it it's epistolary is, is yes. the technical term for it um this epistolary style is is him more trying to play in the the bram stoker dracula writing um and, you know, and it's very much more of what the the average horror kind of story was at that time, you know, where it is, it takes place in the distant, distant past. It's all, you know, olden times and, you know, wagon wheel times and stuff, you know, whereas Salem's Lot, what was so groundbreaking about that, it, it was that it was a, you know, it was, it was a vampire story told in a suburb that you recognize, you know, which is the same little secret to uh, Spielberg's success, right? Which was, you know, we're going to take this thing and we're going to put in average people, you know, it's going to be a ghost story, but it's in, it's in a, a newly constructed, you know, suburb, you know, we'll call it poltergeist, you know, it, it, it took it out of the castles, I guess is what the, what the line is on that. Um, and what's really interesting to me about this is, is when they start getting into the discovery of, of the mystery mysteries of the worm and the book. And they feel the, this giant, you know, worm God essentially underneath the soil moving and trying to wake up. And it's an escalation story, right? Cause it's all about, you know, at first it's a creepy house and then there's something in the walls and then, and then there's, you know, this mystery of this cult. And then there's this giant worm right. that, that, you know, then it just starts building and building. And then to the realization that the thing's moving, uh, behind the walls are like his dead family members who are now vampires, right? That are kind of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like, uh, uh, you know, victims of the cult. Um, and uh, I, don't way, know. I found really amusing and, and, and truly baffling. This is my only, not even a critique of, the, of it, but just the thing that I was, I was very left questioning hmm. was um, he found his, his undead family members. And so he just like locked the cellar and then just went out of his life. <laughs> no, he's yeah. like, I guess they're just there. Well, I mean, the <laughs> yeah, house they, is like in a good seals, neighborhood. I mean, he seals the fucking basement or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I'm wondering, I was, I was thinking about this when I was rereading it was I would probably start in the room below that trap door though. You know, uh, like he had to go through a series of rooms to find the fucking, people on the walls right right like i would have thrown out some roadblocks in between there and the trap door because then from what i'm from then on out all i'm thinking about if i'm standing near that thing is like are the vampires like right underneath that motherfucker right now because i would not be comfortable want to set some kevin McAllister booby traps for the yeah (laughs) or like fucking booby traps bureau over a a doorway (laughs) or something you know but you know he just yeah it's sealed now I'd, i'd still be worried that they would get out 
is what I'm saying. Do you think that there's a, is there in the story, is there still a part of him that he believes he's still suffering from mental illness? He, he several times make references to a fever he experienced as a result of the mm. death of his fiance, Sarah, oh, his, yeah. his wife, Sarah. Mm-hmm. He brings it up several times. He'd had these breaks in the past. So is he, there's a part of him that's viewing that he's having another one of these breaks. Mm. And I think his servant is thinking that it's another, he's, oh no, it's happening again. It's a mm. mental illness thing. Right. And then obviously, ultimately, whoever acquired these letters believes it was another psychotic break as a, in a similar way that the, that Charles has had in the past. Right. Um, it is worth mentioning that even though this story takes place, um, was written a long time before Twin Peaks ever existed, some of his like diary entries, he sounds like a 19th century um, Agent Cooper. Mm-hmm. Let me read you some of these lines. <laughs> Uh, dear bones, such a place this is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dear, dear, this, and then in, in regards to people telling him his house is haunted, dear bones, such memories these folks have. Bones, <laughs> just should, just swap out <laughs> bones for swap out on your next read. Swap out bones for Diane. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then <laughs> one last one. It's, this is when things start going bad. Dear bones. Developments of a disquieting nature. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's a line that I also, I just wanted to shout out as well. I just, if, if we're doing it, is um, in the book. I'm just going to ruin another short story from a di- totally different author's book. Um, in the book Haunted by Chuck Palahniuk, mm-hmm. he, he, uh, there's this story of a person who is trapped on the, I'm just ruining it. So, so uh, fast forward. But he, um, He's trapped on the bottom of a pool because his intestines oh, guts. are stuck in the guts. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. are stuck in the, the sucker, and he has to bite through his own intestines. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, otherwise, that, that have now externalized themselves from his body. Otherwise, he will drown. Yes, and he says, and he says this line that is one of my favorite lines I've ever read. So I bring it up all the time, which is, um, is like, I won't tell you what it tasted like because if I did, you'd never eat calamari ever again. <laughs> And um, that's and, the and actually, that's the short story that used to make people faint when yeah. Polonic was doing like live readings and shit. Yeah. It is. I think it was right during that moment, that that exact moment, the part where you have to bite through it. But um, but he has a very King has a very similar line. And I just realized I think I'm addicted to playful lines like that. And it was um, I will not say we defiled the 1900 years man has spent climbing upwards from a hunkering and superstitious savage by actually running. But I would be a liar to say that we strolled. <laughs> cute. I like I like it when people from the 1850s can still be cute. With their it's very well. I mean, obviously, this is Stephen King, but you get it. So we have uh, an interesting ad read. They have sent us a script which we are going to follow word for word during the ad break, the mid-roll ad break on this show. Uh, are you ready, Best Man? I am. I got to get into character. Give me a second. Very well. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to I want to point out that the first line in the script is interior sexy podcasters home. Yep, I have to set up my lava lamps and get my heart-shaped mm-hmm. bed ready cuz I I, yeah. you know, I have to be in character for this. All right. I just got <clears> my <throat> dick out. Well, that's your modus operandi. So, so at interior average day at Scott Wampler's house. All right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. Mm, slasher movies. Mm-hmm. Ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, you got your slasher in my ghost story. Hey, you got your ghost story in my slasher. Delicious. Mm. Oh, delicious. Nom, 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 uh, nom. Slasher movies and ghost stories are two great tastes that go great together. Find them in The Dead Friends Society, the debut novel from Austin-based filmmakers Peter Hall and Paul Gandersman. Think of it like Scream meets Beetlejuice, only with a much higher body count, and you're really not far off. The Dead Friend Society is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can order it through bookshop.org to support your local independent bookstore. And we both solemnly swear to one day actually read it and tell Peter Hall and Paul Gandersman they are our most favorite people and confess deep, profound shame for not having read the book uh, when they sent it to us uh, months ago, Stephen King himself told us it was really good, but we deleted that part from his episode and are only telling you that 100% true fact now because someone else wrote these words and we are being forced to read them for capitalism. The Dead Friend Society is out now on ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. If you read it, it will make you a better, smarter, more good looking human being. Scientists don't want us to tell you that but it's a 100 true fact and definitely not made up by the same people who made up the uh excellent genre bending life-saving story for the dead friend society which is the best book that i personally scott wampler have ever read and i think it's time to get back to the show now that we've illuminated this amazing incredible life-changing history changing yes. one would say book and I just, I, I just do want to point out that the final line of this script is dragula blasts children riot Let's get back to it. Just out of curiosity, if y'all were to, let's say y'all had to move into a house some through some complicated series of machinations, uh, y'all were both left an old house like this one and moved into it and the same shit started happening. Would you personally go, are you, are you going something in the dirt style where you're getting obsessed with it and trying to investigate it? Are you fucking out of there? Like right away? I think if there was undead in my walls, that would be a safety hazard. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But not up to code. I don't think. Otherwise. Yeah. I'd go super. I'm I'm right. Yeah. Without a doubt. I got something in the dirt. You know what? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it would be like, this must be filmed, but I, I do think it would be like, this must be confirmed for oneself because this is going to influence my spiritual views for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, like, oh, this is a profound game changing thing. <laughs> right. Just in terms of like, like your own fundamental life philosophies and everything. Sure. Um, that part would probably take precedence over. I got to get it on video. I think mm. I'm kind of with you on this because I'm like, I've had I've had a couple of, of experiences that I cannot explain, but I would but I'm also the type of person where I'm like, I'm not gonna leap to it there's a supernatural explanation. I can only like tell a story and be like, I don't have an explanation for that, and it's kind of creepy. But if I, I would no one would be fucking happier than me if if they like witnessed something like something flat out that just could not be denied. And I could like latch onto that. I'd be so I'd be so excited to see like see a ghost, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Full full on wish fulfillment. Yeah. Full on <laughs> fulfillment. Yeah. Do you all believe in ghosts like otherwise or the supernatural or anything? Uh just in a very similar viewpoints here is um the door is wide open to possibilities mm-hmm. uh, of, of of that of, of God and ghosts and, and aliens from another planet and all of that. Um, 
haven't seen an enormous amount of evidence uh, and, and nothing in a repeatable study, uh, which is a which is right. difficult. Um, and then and then there are some philosophical and logical problems with the view of ghosts and aliens from another planet as they are currently viewed. Right. Meaning like ghosts being disembodied souls have that has like logical problems. Um, as opposed to, for example, they are a time rift where we're just seeing into when those people were alive, you know, like, right. That, make, that makes a little more sense. Mm. But, um, but, you know, I mean, there's, there's even like a math problem of like, well, where are the caveman ghosts and aren't we running out of bodies to put souls in and, and things like that for repeating things like that. Right. Um, so, so the, the, the explanation of what ghosts are by most dictionary definitions, I think we got to, we probably would say that's probably not what's happening. Um, but it's possible that whatever people are experiencing as per uh, in, in these supernatural ways has just another explanation that um, that we just haven't heard yet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm, I'm, I'm more of your mind about this. Yeah, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And it sounds like with what you were saying earlier about like, oh, there's, you know, if, if there is a God, it's I don't think that there's it's we have any way to one comprehend what that being is and understand its existence. And I don't think we're anywhere close to thinking about it in the right way. Right. You know, it's like I uh, I, I kind of feel that way with supernatural stuff. And, and you know, I, I think the brain has a lot of really interesting things about it that's still so mysterious and unknown to science. Um, and I think a lot of that, a lot of what we perceive um, as supernatural is is something that y- your brain is doing, whether or not it's actually saying, you know, it's a an illusion, it's a vision, you know, that it's an imagination, you know, it could be all those, could be none of those, could be a mixture of all those. I don't know. But like when people talk about like, you know, I, I'm a Christian and, you know, when I, I, you know, drowned and I was brought back and I saw my the the tunnel of light and I saw God and I saw my family. It's like you hear that. But then you also hear other people that believe other things that when they die, like their brain gets flooded with those, you know, death, <laughs> death sure. chemicals, the, the <clears throat> and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and I think that it's probably just envisioning what you think is going to happen if you're given the chance to. Like you know, if you know you're dying and you're given in that moment where you're, you know, your brain's get, getting a chance to try to prepare your yourself for it. You know, I don't know. There's something in there that I think somewhere in there is the right answer, you know, but I like you, I, I was raised um, not really religious. It, it was I mean, I, I wouldn't say atheist like my mom loved all those like angel shit. She had cherubs and stuff all over the place, but she wasn't any really <laughs> like denomination you know but i guess that she also felt pressured because she was a single mom in the 80s right and i think she felt a lot of pressure maybe she's just like babies with wings you don't know she does as long as they're carrying bows that's all they you know bow and arrows (laughs) little little babies with bows and arrows that's what she liked um but i think she did feel a lot of pressure for like to kind of show that there was some sort of moral center or whatever to her as as a single mom even though she never really believed believed any of that stuff and you know never really raised me to you know she never said don't believe this stuff but it was it wasn't something that was hammered into my head as true for years and years it wasn't like a santa claus situation you know yeah oh yeah yeah it's funny we're talking about this because like i I forget which one of you said it earlier but when i asked about you know uh cosmic horror and its relation to the supernatural and when you all started talking about being raised atheist that's there's something really fascinating about that in in that idea of maybe if you're not raised ultra religious because i wasn't either 
and I'm I'm more attracted to, you know, uh, cosmic horror than slashers, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I I tend to find that shit legitimately frightening, whereas like a masked maniac only scares me so much, right? So I I think you kind of turned over a rock on a really interesting thought here that maybe if you're not raised ultra religious or religious at all, you know, you the, the stuff that scares you. Um, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with religion. And in fact is probably more about the, the infinite infinity of space and, and reality itself, right. you know, that, that existential kind of shit, then, you know, my dead grandpa is going to haunt me, you know, That's, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, I, I can like, I can remember stink, distinctly the moment of my childhood where I got really stuck on the idea of infinite space and time. Mm. And that, that event that evening has rippled out through definitely like my yeah. whole life and definitely like my creative works for sure. Where it's, um, again, I think it's like part of the wish fulfillment of, 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 um, of, you know, all the things that like a traditional religion might provide you to give you comfort about your, your place in infinite space and time. If you don't have those, there's a desire to invent them, I guess is a good way to put it. Mm. And that is your, your wish fulfillment and come up with things that maybe you could conceivably believe in, even though, you know, you're working on an act of fiction. Mm. Right. I, 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 it's interesting is right. I paused reading the book or Jerusalem's lot when I saw, when they enter Jerusalem's lot, they enter the church and there's this kind of perversion of Madonna and child. There's this kind of like Lovecraftian painting of Madonna and child. She's like mm-hmm. giving birth to a, mo- to a monstrosity and the, ch- the cross was upside down and all of that. Right. And I paused and I Googled what Stephen King's religious views are. And of course, I, I don't think you should look, we're, we're going to, we're going to fictionalize Stephen King for a moment because oh, sure. talking about going to Wikipedia to find out someone's religious views is like not a fair thing to do. Right. But, um, I, uh, I found out he has exactly the same upbringing as me. Um, he was raised Methodist, specifically Methodist, um, and then started asking questions around, you know, high school, college, and uh, still leaves the door open for God and won't say that he doesn't exist, but is not, uh, but but is no longer, you know, follows precisely that faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's I. So so the things that appeal to him rights wise should appeal to me as well. Right. But, I, but to be honest, I, uh, I, I don't get frightened and never have by upside down crucifixes and, right. Uh, right. and, and like, like, like the, the things that, um, if the exorcist were meant to be taken very literally, that it's like, that's the devil and all of that, those things don't frighten me beyond the visceral. Um, they, they don't, they don't rely yes. on me what worrying about the actual devil. And it's a weird thing where I, I, I know that a lot of King's stories are doing that. Um, they do rely on that kind of mythology. Although I will, a huge asterisk is Jerusalem's lot does not. Uh, Jerusalem's not. It, it, it takes pains to say that it's actually older than Christianity. Right. Um, and that's what the, the, the book of the worm or whatever it is, is all right. about. Man, but, I, but, I, but it's weird is those things never really freaked me out um, either. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, and it's, and it's weird because there is a lot of fiction that does rely on, um, you know, fear of the devil, uh, uh, fear of like going to hell, that kind of thing as your, as your stake. 
Right. I'm with you 100% on this, especially this thing about exorcist movies. Mm. Like it's it, this is I I've said the like the exact same thing you've just said. I've said before where it's like essential the bottom line is like I don't believe in this shit, so I don't find it very scary. You know, like any exorcism movie is going to ultimately come down to somebody in a bed with some makeup on, maybe speaking in tongues or something like that. And somebody else chanting over them with like Bible verses. And I just don't find this inherently frightening. Even Mm -hmm. even the exorcist, which I I grant is like recognized as one of the scariest films ever made. It doesn't really scare me. It's never really scared me. I've always kind of thought like it's it's a it's an excellent film, but I think that I think it is trading on the, the religious angle a bit. Like if you're not, if you're not sold on that, what do you really have to hold on to? Well, I think this is, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting chewy sort of thing. Right. You know, in the case of the the exorcist, I think that like, cause I, I'm in the same boat where I don't believe demons exist. And those who do, those are the ones that were fainting at the theater and, you know, thinking that the devil was actually in the film, you know, and was going to drop out of the screen, which adds a whole other layer that I never got to experience with that thing. But, you know, for me, the exorcist was always, you know, about saving the, you know, this girl, you know, not necessarily even saving her soul, but like just saving her life, you know? So sure. I I was, I was into it, you know, and that, and then there, they do, it's again, not a bad a t- movie, like by any There's stretch. a tone thing, too. There's, you know, Friedkin in The Exorcist plays with a lot of nightmare imagery, which I always love. It's like Phantasm and even to a degree, the Salem's Lot, um, uh, Toby Hooper movie plays with mm-hmm. a lot of that, you know, the thing backwards. everything's, yeah, the backwards fog and everything's kind of unreal, you know. So I'm thinking of like all the nightmares Damien has about his, his dead mother, you know, like standing at the subway and then her going back down in the subway and he's trying to get to her and, you know, and all that stuff. There's just something about the tone of, of that movie that, you know, I think for just horror fans, they can appreciate that. And then, you know, if you are deeply religious, then you get that whole other angle where you think that that's real. You think it's the Blair Witch, right? You think it's a documentary, you know, uh, almost. Um, yeah, but uh, but I'm kind of with you. Like most exorcism movies are, you know, I, I can take or leave, you know, and they're all, you know, to the one almost always you know, just a variation on the better movie that was made in, in the early seventies, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing in just to throw out an example, that'll be relevant to our, our guest. Hmm. Like nothing in the exorcist scares me as much as the scene in the endless where they're pulling on the rope. That's just going up into the sky. Do you know Hmm. what I'm talking about? Like that. I remember I, I caught it at fantastic fest the year that it, that it screened there. I've seen it since, but that was the first time I saw it. And I remember being so alarmed by that. Like, and there's really no reason, like there's, there's really no reason for me to say, well, like I have no proof that, that um, some sort of interdimensional thing might be possible or that, you know, our reality may be rubbing up against another reality or like any of those sort of things that we're talking about. Like, when it comes to cosmic core, I can't prove any of that. You know, I can't, I don't believe that any of that is, is real, but the fact that I keep using the word, but I think it, it just keeps coming back to unknowability. Mm-hmm. And I think that with an exorcist movie where you're, 
<laughs> where you're uh, focusing it on a thing that requires the buy-in of, you know, being somewhat religious to, to just to get on board with the presence or, or excuse me, the, uh, the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't play as well. Um, well I, I think, I, I, I think I the unexplainable is way, way more frightening than if you put a point <clears throat> on it and now it's a specific demon set by this specific evil right. deity in order to do X, Y, or Z. Which to your point though, I think the reason why you're, you're feeling that way is because in an exorcism, specifically an exorcism movie, there is a rule book, a literal printed book of this is how you yeah. deal with it. You know? And when you're dealing with, you know, an eldritch horror, like what the fuck do you do? Like, what is this? This isn't, yeah. uh, this isn't a, a traditional vampire where you hold up a cross or, uh, you know, drive a stake through its heart. Like, what do you do with this? Like yeah, a you, giant you, there fucking no... worm under the ground. What am yeah. I, you know, what yeah. am I expected to do with that? Yeah, there's a rope in the sky. What the fuck is going on? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, in terms of like just the general category of let's just call it like uh, evangelical horror, which I think is like a term that you can you can place on certain things. Nice. Um, where it's like, oh yeah, okay. So like, The Conjuring is evangelical horror. It's a wonderfully crafted film, mm-hmm. but it obviously like it it has an extremely traditional Christian religious uh, viewpoint, right? that the that the rules of the story and the narrative rely on mm-hmm. um and the exorcist in comparison is kind of interesting because well yes it is it is correct it is a movie about people coming in and using religious symbols to uh to conquer the monster of the story but and i think this this information varies from cut to cut of the movie but I'm pretty sure the original theatrical cut leaves it very mysterious. You start at the archaeological dig. They dig up this image of they never. I don't think they ever say it, but it's Pazuzu. Pazuzu, yeah. yeah. Which, mm-hmm. is a, which is a demon that I think technically predates in mythology. It predates Abrahamic religions. It goes back to like Babylon, I think. I mm-hmm. think Sumerians. Yeah. Um, and I think those are all very interesting choices. And then isn't there a point in the third act where they try to test what is in the little girl, and it, it fails the test of being. Yeah. A demon, demon that they, yeah. the devil, a demon they could recognize, and it remains a mystery. And I think that that's why The Exorcist works better than most. I mean, there's right. lots of reasons. It's also just insanely good filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. one of the reasons why it stands a test of time because it's that additional, just it's the mystery, it's the question of what exactly is in that little girl. Uh, I, I got three quick things. One is I'll hear no ill talk of The Exorcist. It's one of the best. <laughs> Two is by total coincidence, I was at the park with my dog yesterday. Someone was wearing an exorcist shirt, this girl named Deidre, and we had exactly this conversation. Um, and, uh, and then three is, I posit this to the room because I just realized it. Mm. And I think the answer is going to just come right back to unknowability. <laughs> but like, if we call the demon Pazuzu and it's older than Abrahamic religions, just because Christianity is popular and that one isn't, is... Why is, why is one more valid than, than, the, than the other one? Because hmm. I agree that way. Oh. But, but it's the unknowability, right? It's the yeah. fact that we don't know. And I think, I think it's also, it's just a, it's, it, because it's just the idea that it's a supernatural being that we, I guess we can't track the invention of it. Right, right. right because right. it goes back too far. Yeah. Well, that's why. I also, it, it, it's not the unnamability. It's the it's, fact that it's like, the, it's, it's very nature. I'd, al- I'd also like to point out that. the exorcism doesn't work. It, right. it, it, because that's of that, right. I think you're exactly right. It's not, it, it becomes a battle of wills and, and that's what I guess exorcism ultimately boil down to whether or not it's uh, 
you know, oh, this verse in the Bible can make this demon, you know, hurt this demon. Um, but it really is a battle of wills, which is because I mean, uh, what's his name? Karis, Damien Karis, like splashes the girl with tap water and says it's holy water uh, as a test. And it hurts. It hurts the girl and it shouldn't. Right. Um, and he's using it as a way to prove that she's not really uh, possessed early on. Um, but what that ultimately shows is that, no, you know, she is. She's just not, you know, it, he believed that that uh, she would react that way. So she does. You know, it's like it is. It, it's all a battle of wills. And that's why, um, you know, he he fails when, you know, they're in the sent out of the room. And ultimately, the only way to deal with it is to bring the evil into himself and then kill himself. Right. And uh, the, that's the only way to save the the girl. That's not how it is in the the exorcism, you know, uh, part of the, the Bible, you know, the, the chapter, you Ooh. know. So I think that's to your point that, you know, especially for that movie, if we're talking specifically exorcist, maybe that's why that that works so well. And what a lot of the people who attempt exorcism movies after that um, kind of fail to acknowledge, you know. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of possession movies that uh, are not this complicated. Right. right. Just, it's, it's just no, there's a. What did the book, what did the Exorcist book do? I remember you, you've told me there's differences. Either it's more God. religious or less religious. One, one of the two. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I think, I don't know. I shouldn't even say. My, my, I shouldn't even say this because that's the little I remember. Ah, okay. But I, I think, uh, <laughs> William Peter Blatty. Yeah. Blatty. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. William Peter Blatty, I, from what I understand, is was actually coming from a more religious point of view than Freakin was originally, mm-hmm. but I could be just totally misremembering this. I seem to remember the, the Iraq sequence was something that, that, that the Freakin Freakin was, was felt a, passionately right. about, right? Yeah. Like something like that, which and is interesting because Freakin's also a true believer, Yeah, but he, he specifically wanted it to be, this made, by the way, oh my gosh, big misinformation label, please. We might just be, <laughs> like, we don't know, mm-hmm. but, I, but it would be interesting if, a true believer said, no, I want this story to actually be something that is older than the yeah. very real thing. I believe it's, yeah, That's an interesting thought. You know? hmm. yeah. Yeah. A nice exorcist tangent. I do appreciate oh, yeah. it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I forgot we were talking about Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to find a, uh, 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 a way an, elegant, an, an, an elegant segue back. To, to well, I mean, the, the elegant segue, I think, is talking about, you know, I think King embraced that battle of wills as, as his centerpiece to the vampire mythology. My favorite uh, scene in Salem's Lot is the battle of wills between Father Callahan and the master in Barlow and mm-hmm. how, you know, he his cross doesn't work because he doesn't believe in it enough, you know, and that's what it comes mm-hmm. down to, you know. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one thing I, I love and will always love about King is just how much of a voracious absorber of literature he is. Right. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was inspired, you know, in part by the exorcist or, um, uh, either the book or the movie. Cause he's, you know, he, he absorbs both of those, um, uh, entertainment and storytelling mediums. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder how much of that is because I mean, I, we, we spent a lot of time talking about his Lovecraft influences, his Stoker influence in this story in particular, you know, I, I just, he, he's somebody who wears his, his, uh, nerdery on his, his, uh, sleeve, you know, he, you know, he doesn't care, uh, to mm-hmm. about trying to hide it or try to elevate it. You know, he just goes, this is what I like and I'm going to play in this 
this arena. So maybe that's our oh. way back into talking about Jerusalem's lot. Well, I'm going to take us back down another way then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you're just saying he wears his influences on his sleeve in a way, and obviously he's also wildly original. Has Spielberg ever adapted King? Because mm. I just feel like they occupy the exact same place. No, and, um, and this is this is actually a thing that's come up on the show many times. Because we, oh, sorry, okay, are, right. well, well, no, 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 it's 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 fine. It's great we're talking about this. Uh, we love talking about this. Um, we kind of believe that King and Spielberg are sort of flip sides to the same coin in different mediums, and that. They've they've almost worked together like a number of times. And Spielberg famously whole like bought the lifetime rights to the talisman when he came out. He was so determined to make that one. Um, yeah. Now he's executive producing it for the Duffer Brothers and Netflix. And yeah, I don't know. Well, I hope that I hope that happens. But right. it seemed like it. they announced that and it's been so. Well, I don't know. The Duffers are still busy with stranger things i guess yeah. so we'll, yeah i think we'll it was always intended that, to but... be after stranger things but you know since the announcement you know netflix has yeah. also the stock like that, lost half its value and all that so that who knows? Pro- yeah and that property just has like a decades-long history now of like someone announcing an adaptation and then it just like totally fucking bottoming out um but uh but yes, was, we think Spielberg and King are very similar and they have almost worked together on a few things and right. it never panned out. But I, I would famously, love to see, you know, Spielberg tackle a, a King adaptation. Oh, yeah. I think very famously, he approached King to write Poltergeist whenever he was yeah, gearing up to true. do Poltergeist. And he like had a meeting. I think he even like sat, went, sat down in a diner or something with King and pitched him Poltergeist and King just didn't have the time to do it. And I don't think he'd. At that point, maybe he hadn't written a screenplay yet, and he wasn't. I don't think he was really keen on on uh, doing it. And then Spielberg ended up writing writing it uh, himself. Mm. I think he has a. If I, I might be mistaken on this, I know that he has the cr- screenplay credit, and but I think that there's like a little controversy, and and like somebody didn't get win an arbitration that should have or something. I don't know. I'd have to go I look just... into that. But um, you know, the fact that he the first person that Spielberg thought of for his uh, suburban ghost movie was uh, uh, was Stephen King, and he tried to get him to do it. I can't imagine like what I, I think. Poltergeist is perfect. I love that movie, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. But. Um, uh, you know, that what if is really interesting. What would Stephen King's, you know, uh, version of Poltergeist have been, you know, especially mm-hmm. through this, the Spielberg and Hooper lens. And moreover, what, you know, setting aside the talisman, because we know he wants to do that, but he's never going to do it. Like what what King novel would you want Spielberg to adapt? Mm. <clears throat> oh, I put this question to our guests. Yes. Yeah. He's a- <laughs> just do a remake of Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> shot for shot, like Gus Van Zandt. Well, you know, it, it, it had a core of a good idea. Yeah. The execution of the you know, <laughs> greatest movie of all time. As a um, tribute to my dear friend Stanley, I will be remaking The Shining. <laughs> Although he kind of fucking, he kind of fucked around in that toy box with Ready Player One. Uh, yeah. More than a right. bit. You know, that's, right. you know. Yeah. That's and that that sequence is like, I don't know, for me, it's like somehow the best and worst part of that movie. Mm. Like, I'm fascinated that it exists, you know, and watching it is a real fucking trip. But also it's like. I don't know if I like I don't know if I like this and mm. I don't and I, I don't really like the rest of the movie, so I'm not, I'm not sure how to mm. feel about this, but it's. 
it's an unpopular I, opinion, but I love Ready Player One. So it's mm. uh, that that one. I I understand why people hate it, but that movie works for me, and I think it's fascinating to see Spielberg playing in with his own nostalgia. Like to me, that is infinitely fascinating to me. You know whether so, or not the the story you know merits being. I told, hear you, you but know, is, we can argue that. But is the nostalgia know. of here's the thing though is the nostalgia of Ready Player Run really Spielberg's nostalgia? You know, like that man no, wasn't no, born in nostalgia. 1975. He's playing, he's playing you know? in the nostalgia that he he invented, which is that's what's fascinating to me. It's not fascinating that you know. I mean, the Fablemans, oh, okay, is Spielberg and his nostalgia. Right. Like I'm talking about, he's playing around with you know DeLoreans and shit, which is he produced. You know, he's playing around with Jaws. He's playing around with you know all this imagery. You know that uh, you know Jurassic Park. You know he's he's throwing that in as you know in the nostalgia machine. I don't know. I think it's. It's a way more interesting movie than it gets credit for, but uh, I'm sure we'll have reason to deep dig deeper into that in some other form, maybe. Who knows? So, yes. When uh, when Aaron and I were in New York promoting, we were promoting The Endless, and we were like, we had time to kill, and we saw that Ready Player One was playing at this movie theater that does. Was it called 4D? 4DX? 4DX? <laughs> oh so, like, shit! Where they like shake your chair is, and shit? Yeah, one, spray it, you with water. Yeah, yeah, it's playing in 4DX. And I wasn't even sure what that was, but we were just like, let's just go see this 40X thing, Ready Player One. Tickets were like $40. I think it was, more. <laughs> yeah, it was like $50 insane. a ticket. Yeah. And, um, and Let me guess, the, uh, the seat sprayed Ecto Cooler on you instead of water. <laughs> I think so, but here's the funny thing. Mountain Dew Code Red. Yeah. <laughs> no, the funny thing was, was um, yes, the chairs move. And you got the 3D glasses on, and there's other things happening. One of the things, yes, it's spraying water. But the hilarious thing you? is, is that it sprays water onto your 3D goggles, and then you can't see. <laughs> so you gotta like take off your 3D goggles, clean them off until you get hit by water again. Yeah. It wasn't like I was like, man, this is not. This wasn't well planned. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of fascinating. Yeah. You ever used but, something where you're just like, did the designer ever actually use the thing? Like, you yeah. ever been in like a like a European bathroom where it's like, you ever did you guys try to take a shower in this before like making it a shower? <laughs> it, it was like that, or it's like you do understand you're spraying water onto my goggles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, That's why I've never I've never done that shit. We have a theater here that does it, and I've never actually gone and done it because it it just seems like. I don't want to be like, I love going to the draft house um, and I feel like they are really good or their, their service staff is really good with um, not being too intrusive on a movie. You know, we can debate whether or not like bringing food to you is intrusive, but I think for the most part, they duck down, you know, Mm -hmm. they keep it quiet. You know, it's very unintrusive in my opinion, but like, this, with 40x you're talking about going to see a movie where you're basically getting physically assaulted by a chair for like <laughs> for like two hours you know it's gonna like bang you in the hips or fucking swing you around a little bit or spray something in your face and i'm like that's not in no way is that how i want to watch a m- movie are you people insane like you know what, you know what we, we we haven't cracked yet is doing 4dx for a movie okay i saw this movie by bygone called um uh long day's journey into night mm. uh, not not that uh-huh. one but a new one <laughs> right and um uh and halfway through the movie you are supposed to put on 3d glasses and and then it's just one long take of someone wandering around essentially and i kind of want i want 
to try that a little bit more. These highly, these very expensive, technically difficult things on movies like Drive My Car. You know, just like these very <laughs> slow Criterion <laughs> movies. And like, you know, if you're in a car, maybe your seat will run, rumble a little bit, you know? If you have a nice peaceful scene, it's, it's, you get a little spray of... Uh, Ocean you know, mist incense. in your face. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking about Stephen King. Yes. <laughs> I told you there'd be alleyways along the way. Um, yeah, so, but but really, like, if, uh, if you wanted to see... If you could wave a wand and make Spielberg adapt any King property, what would you do? Like the best, it's hard. Like the, the best matches were him that become obvious. It's like the green mile. Right, right. Who would remake that? Yeah. Um, Shawshank Redemption. No. Yeah. Uh, what's like a, like a, you know, uh, no, I was, I was going to say desperation would be, a, I'd like to see him take that on, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, you gotta uh, you. It's it's tough because you gotta oh think about it. Like, because obviously, it's Spielberg has two modes, right? He has like not fucking around Spielberg, which is like yeah, War of the you Worlds, know. yeah, you yes. know. Um, and then there's like kind of more lighthearted Spielberg. So obviously, this is, you know, I I think we're assuming this has to be like Spielberg in dark mode. Guys, uh, I, I think I have it. I really do. Mm. I think it's equal things. Yes. I was oh, say that. I fucking love that. I yeah. My whole like, thing with it, Needful it, Things is I want that to be a black comedy. I want it to be like, <laughs> you know, the, like a straight up horror comedy as it was intended to be when it was written. You know, like it's supposed to be a satire. So give me a really funny but also violent version of Needful Things, and I'm all in. And see, I loved it. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but like one it's of the already key, one of, of I, I think one of I, I keep threatening to write it myself, but like. The, the key to a, a new needful things is that you've really got to subvert the idea of a small town in America and Americana and all that bullshit and make it my what I would want to see is like a really satirical version of that. And it would be super funny to see Spielberg monkeying around with Americana with also some. You know, some grisly murders along the it way. It sounds like you're describing 1941 <laughs> to me, which, which is, I got to admit, kind of a fascinating idea. You know, him taking, you know, somewhere some middle ground between 1941 and Poltergeist to hit <laughs> to hit needful things. I'd be I know, possibly. I know this is me off topic, but someone said desperation, mm-hmm. and then I started thinking, like, wait, who is an actual good director for the book Desperation? And I thought, how about this, guys? Uva Bull. Uh, P- uh, was it Peter Weir who directed Picnic at Hanging Rock? Yeah. So Peter Weir uh, to direct Desperation because he did Picnic at Hanging Rock. So that mm. sounds amazing. So like primordial evil and the mm. geology. And mm. okay. And then here's the other one. Think about this. Coen Brothers and No Country for Old Men mode. And you make yeah. the you make yeah, the sheriff of the, the town sheriff. and just oh, wow. floating. Yeah. And, but uh, but right. like but you feel this. No one talks about the primordial whatever yeah. is happening in the geology, but you feel it. Mm. And, and see it now just, you got me thinking Ben Wheatley for this, yeah. talking about geology. Oh, ben Wheatley, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, ben Wheatley's definitely on this yeah, list. <laughs> in the Earth, which I have not seen, but I I know you know. The oh shit! It's good. Yeah, it's real good. Uh, it's like. It's like, Wheatley. It's Wheatley, it's Wheatley back in kill list mode, and I cannot say anything. I could not give a bigger compliment because I kill list is like one of my favorite fucking yeah, movies. It's one of the best. Period. It's yeah. it's one of the scariest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. There's, not, there's not very many of those. I like, agree. No, it's just scary. You're scary. Yeah. Um, I skipped so seeing that at South by 
the year it was here because the description was just like a hitman is in way over his head. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, I've seen this shit before. I'm fine. It's so funny you say that because we say that every time. We're like, the pitch the pitch for the movie doesn't work. The pitch is lame. Yeah. The movie is the tone and, and it kind of brings us very full circle back to the idea of tone. Right. Um, kind of trumping everything is the tone is haunted. The premise is fine. You know? Right. Like even even if you spoil the whole movie all the way beginning to end, still the premise is kind of fine. Mm-hmm. But the way it feels is like something's terribly wrong in the world, and I need to go. I need to go donate to charity or figure out a religion <laughs> or something. Like something's and wrong. Also, when you're when you're driving on those highways in the Southwest and you see those little roads that shoot off of the highway, no one's on. Yeah. You always wonder like what's down that road. Yeah. How what what dangers await me? Yeah. And anything, <laughs> no one would ever know. Yeah. yeah. Where you see like you see like thirty miles away underneath some some mountain, just like an outcrop of like four buildings, and it's like what what is there? Yeah, that's exactly it. And there's so many of them, and again, no one would ever know what happened to you even today. Yeah, Yeah. there's probably no communications besides landlines. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, there we go. So when your next movie is all about uh, people on a road trip, seeing that we know that it all was inspired by. The King cast, of course, and Desperation just a little bit. Or you could, you know, you could drive down into, I don't know, like rural San Diego and uh, and get get where the phones don't work. And maybe you Mm. encounter a commune Mm. that has knows something, Mm. you know, maybe you stay in the commune for a little while and maybe they have a a ceremony with a rope going up into the air. (laughs) But no warm book. Let's let's bring it bring it in for a landing on this question, then. Like if y'all were going to do a King adaptation, what would you? What would you take on guys? Uh, everyone says this. So we're just, we're going to zoom past the dark tower because it would be the dark tower, right? Sure. It would just be the dark tower yeah. guys. Probably just do, yeah. do the gunslinger as, as a good starting place. Just shoot the gunslinger as a not too big a budget feature film. And just basically almost just follow the book. Yeah. Almost precisely. Yeah. And, and, but do it as a, don't do it with a gigantic budget that that's a huge risk. Yeah. Just right uh, be, be reasonable, but shoot that book, mm-hmm. that story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, you, then, I uh, think y'all would be a good fit for that first. We'd be for a sure. perfect fit. And anyone listening, you know, <laughs> call us up. Um, but the, uh, I, I think one of, one of the reasons, I mean, there's plenty of reasons why, why other adaptations have taken off and not, we have no idea what happens behind the scenes and all of that. We think the biggest thing is that, that there's a, there is an instinct that the books don't work as movies and we just disagree. Yeah. We think we think the books do work as movies pretty straightforwardly. Um, and then uh, and then just because everyone says the Dark Tower, yeah. um, we've taken a swing, believe it or not, at the Tommyknockers. No uh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. We took a we took a swing. We, we reread it. We kind of like talk about what it would look like if we wanted to. Not not in any professional sense. We were just kind of thinking about it. So you didn't put anything down on paper. You didn't do like a. I mean, we we ha- we. Long conversations become things on paper, but it wasn't it wasn't like a professional right. anything, you know? right? Like an we outline or James Wan to do a draft. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but it's uh, but there is like a version of it that um, has such an interesting critique of the of of of, of uh, the seedy underbelly of America, sort of thing, and and uh, this um, this leaking ship as a uh, we play it kind of like Chernobyl the, the show. Yeah. You know, um, which also, by the way, is cosmic horror, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, even though it's very literal and, and crap, you know, too super dry. But 
I think Chernobyl was one of the, the greatest horror movies of all time. And I think it's because radiation feels like cosmic horror. Totally. Like this invisible, uncaring thing that will murder you very slowly in unknowing ways. It's funny you say this about Chernobyl. the Tommyknockers because this is another one where I feel like a dark comedy is the way to approach the material. You think um, so? I do think so, yeah. And and, huh. and for the same reasons that you were, you know, um, just saying that, you know, about the underbelly of this, you know, small town, right? This is exactly the lines I'm thinking towards for um, needful things. The The weird power of Tommyknockers is that, you know, this idea, you know, like this metaphor for cocaine and the idea that, you know, uh, people will, will gain super intelligence, but also maybe use it to to their to their own advantage in a way that's not advantageous to anyone else. I don't know. It, it seems like the intelligence that you are, are granted in the Tommyknockers, if you get infected by it, usually manifests itself as, you know, uh a woman suddenly able to talk to Jesus through a painting or, mm. you know, like things like that. Um, the idea or the, the complicated mail system that they have going in the post office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that no one's using their Tommyknocker powers to solve world hunger or anything like that. Right. You know, it's all like immediate personal things that they want a solution to. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's something inherently funny about that, that, you know, you might be gifted the complete knowledge of the universe, basically. And and still you're like setting up an elaborate mail sorting system or like a, a typewriter that writes your novels for you. Yeah, you exactly. Know. There's also like the evil vacuum cleaner in the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, Justin, I mean, what, I remember one of our issues was not issues. One of the things that we were like, we couldn't really crack and, and is, uh, What's the main character's name of the Tommy Knocker? He has like guard. a fun little name. Like, what is it? Guard. It's like Gardner. Guard. Yeah, yeah Guard. Uh, was his addiction mm. thing. And we felt like that was like important, but maybe a little tired. Right. Something like that. I yeah. think you could get away with an adaption or an adaptation without it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't inform the character's arc, but I, I think that. That was the problem. You, is that it was you, you inherent, could, but also a little tired, you know? Yeah. Well. You know, I mean, addiction stories are never are never going away. You know, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's yeah, also though. I was gonna say it's also weird because it's like guards the main character, but so is like the writer. You know, his writer lover who then turns out to be the main villain. It's like it, he, yeah, you know, Bobby. Yeah, Bobby. So Bobby, like, yeah. but it, it's weird. It doesn't work, but it's also very fascinating. You know, uh, to kind of break the mold that way, where. You, where this thing is kind of the the Tommyknockers themselves are this formless villain, and the only real physical manifestation we get of this is who is essentially our protagonist as uh, she tr- transforms throughout the book. It's really interesting. I guess the fly kind of does something like that, the Cronenberg and the fly. Hmm. Um, but sure, yeah, you yeah. don't get that a lot. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, uh, we, we thank you very much for being here today. This is a good conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. But let's um, tell them where they can find something in the dirt. Uh, The floor is yours, please. Um, Well, on the 22nd of November, which should be after uh, uh, after this is out or before this is out. Yes, um, just before. Like, I think the the dirt should be available on basically every platform uh, that you can rent movies from rent or buy movies. So 
iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, those are probably the places to go. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else? No, I think that's it. Do you want to yeah. draw people to your social media accounts, perhaps? On Twitter. Oh, well, you know, these <laughs> well, are all Twitter exists right when now. this episode yes. airs in, in a, a week <laughs> of uh, When the time this comes out, there is no social media. We're all free. <laughs> we talk to each other in person. <laughs> It'll be uh, cans with strings. That's how we're going to communicate now. Very well. <laughs> if... Uh, if Twitter still exists when this uh, when this goes up, uh, I'm at Justin H. Benson, and it's the same thing on Instagram. Yeah, and I'm at Aaron Moorhead. Right on. Well, Perfect. thank you so much for being here, gentlemen. An honor to speak to you. I love all your stuff, and you know, I'm very much looking forward to whatever you do next. Thank you. I was listening to the David Bruckner episode last night to prepare for this, and. He just sounds so smart. I think it psyched us out. Yeah. Yeah. You did fine. No, don't, you, no, don't you did great. Yeah. See, you see what they said? We did fine. Fine. Did fine. fine. That's like calling a movie solid. It's like I'm never seeing that movie. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. You you did interesting. No, you were great. Don't don't get in your, your head about it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We just needed a little compliment at the end there. <laughs> no, you well, did you, yeah. a fantastic job. We got to go fantastic down a job. number of a <laughs> number of uh, another a number of blind alleyways that we always <laughs> love going down. Uh, you did a fantastic job, guys. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks to Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead for coming onto the show. Finally, these are two people that we've been yeah. trying to get on the show for a long, long time. The boys. <laughs> We wanted them on. They wanted to come on, but we were waiting for, you know, uh, a new movie. And this was the the perfect op- opportunity to have them on, I think. Matter of fact, they didn't say it in the episode, but they actually made their new movie just so they had an excuse to come on the show. That's true. So. That's true. Uh, that is 100% true. Not not made up at all by me in this outro. I don't think that's the, uh, the last of these guys you've heard on this show, no. but uh, we'll see what happens. But we... We love their work. We encourage you to go out and see uh, something in the dirt and yeah. uh, and the rest of uh, Benson and Moorhead's movies. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think you guys will appreciate the synchronicity of their uh, topic of choice, considering that next week's episode is going to be Salem's Lot. So we've mm-hmm. talked about the prequel story. Now we're going to talk about the gosh dang main attraction next week. Uh, and uh, let's see, what can we say about the episode? It is a returning guest, a director, an actor who has a new movie out that might or might not involve vampires. And that is why he is on the show. Um, and the episode is focused primarily on the Toby Hooper adaptation. Like that, mm-hmm. that was that was the the angle that this guest wanted to bring into it. A lot of people have asked us questions about the new Salem's lot. We don't fucking know. They don't <laughs> tell us anything. I mean, some people tell us a lot of things, but no one involved with Salem's lot is saying shit, uh, nor is Warner Brothers. So we have no idea what's going on with that. But we are going to talk about it and the Toby Hooper version of it uh, next week. And then, you know, we'll probably do another Salem's Lot episode after the new one comes out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm very curious about the 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 new one. It's, do you think it's going to be good? I I do. I got I got faith. I really like the cast. I like I like uh-huh. uh, you know part of what we talk about in next week's episode was is kind of the casting of Ben Mears hasn't really been great up to this point in the various other Salem's Lot adaptations. Yeah, uh, and uh, and 
I don't know. Lewis Pullman as Ben Mears is actually kind of Hughes much closer to the original <laughs> yeah. book. So I, yeah, so I talked on this episode about how I didn't think that, uh, you know, the guy from Starsky and Hutch was an appropriate <laughs> casting choice for this. <laughs> right, right. But then um, Lewis Pullman, who's playing Ben in the new one, like I didn't real, I, I, I hadn't put this together, but over the weekend uh, I went over to a friend's house and watched uh, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. On 4K, projected on a uh, about a 13-foot screen with, like, cozy... This is Shapiro's house, by yeah. the way. I don't know if you've been over there, but mm-hmm. good Lord, what a fucking candy land that is. Um, <laughs> and it's appropriate we're talking about Shapiro on this show because... Uh, or on this episode, because um, he's the head of distribution for uh, XYZ Films, which is releasing something in the dirt. Yes. So anyway, um, as we're watching Top Gun Maverick, I was like, who the fuck is Bob in this? <laughs> like, this guy is great. And I looked it up. You know who it was? Lewis Pullman. That's right. Yeah. So the new Salem's Lot stars Bob from... Top Gun Maverick as as Ben Mears. I am super duper excited now that I have like put this together. This is exactly the Ben Mears I want for uh, this particular movie. So step in the right direction. Yes, it, there's so many mysteries, mysteries. I don't know why I said mysteries. that. Mysteries, mysteries. There's Leave so many mysteries. In, that's good. No, I'm totally keeping that in. Uh, we don't mysteries. know a lot of <laughs> mysteries. Uh, we don't know a lot about the upcoming movie, but like, I don't know, like it just feels like it has the potential to be great. Who who knows like what it ends up mm-hmm. being, but mm-hmm. there, you know, we don't know a lot. We don't know what they're going to do with Barlow. We don't know who is Barlow. Everybody's assuming it's William Sadler at this point because it's he's the only one that was announced that hasn't been been yeah. like named like what their character is. Uh, but who who knows? Who fucking knows? It's uh it's ripe. And I think we talk a lot in this next week episode about kind of what worked and uh, about Toby Hooper's movie mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, where there's room for adaptation, you know, room for improvement for a new new version of it. So absolutely. It's a, yeah. a very solid episode. And um, do you want to drop some hints about the guest? Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that he's a director and, our, and an actor and also a returning guest that has a vampire uh, themed film on the horizon. Uh, matter a of fact, great I think it's out vampire actually. movie. In fact, that movie may be out now. Yes. Um, and perhaps part of our uh, strategy here was to have him on a week after it came out so that everyone or a number of people will have seen it by the time right. it arrives. So we can talk about it freely and without anyone getting mad. Uh, it's on Shutter. Go yeah. look for a vampire I mean, listen, movie we're on Shutter. Spelling it out. It, why don't we just say say who it is and, and what the title is? Why not? We give everybody it is a Doctor Noah Sagan. Yes. So Noah yes. Noah's back, and his movie is called uh, Blood Relatives, and it is very very good. It's kind of this heartwarming vampire road movie father daughter story. Uh, so check it out. It's on Shutter. Uh, watch that. We're going to be talking about Salem's a lot. And uh, yeah, hell, we're, since we're in the mood to share everything, why don't we talk about what the uh, what the bonus episode sitch is on Friday? Well, um, for as long as we've been doing this show, people have been uh, haranguing us about doing an episode about the um, the various audio books of Stephen King, of which there are fucking dozens. <laughs> um, 
And we wanted to do this, but we also like didn't have the time to listen to all the, those, uh, you know, all those audiobooks. Mm-hmm. So we brought in someone who is who is very learned in in this particular arena. And uh, he basically walks us through. Actually, I fucking announced this on Twitter earlier. It's Zach Dion. It's our it's our old buddy, Zach Dion, yeah. who came in once before to uh, school us on the ending of Under the Dome. Right. completely changed my opinion of that book over the course of that conversation. Well, turns out Zach has a deep and abiding knowledge of uh, King audiobooks and came in with um, like a two page Google Doc, just like going through all this minutia. We go through a ton of them and talk about our favorites, our least favorites, all that kind of shit. It is... Uh, I, I think it's the episode that everyone's been wanting, but yeah. we'll uh, we'll find out. People will tell all us if we're wrong. Yeah, yeah. It, we cover pretty much everything in this. Favorites, the best of, the worst of, you know, the kind of fun hidden niche ones that are hard to find and and all that stuff. So Zach, of course, uh, showed up uh, ready for bear, I guess, and they were ready. He 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 did his homework. He he showed up with the. Full as Google Doc and everything that I didn't even bother to look at because that's the kind of host I am. Um, but he, yeah, no, he he came ready and has the knowledge to pull off of that conversation. So if you want to listen to that, and you damn well should, it is going to be over at patreon.com slash the kingcast. Make sure to sign up over there. You'll get access to that this Friday and also instant access to all of our bonus episodes that we've done over the last mm-hmm. three-ish years now. And uh Holy shit, there's so much stuff there. Commentaries, full-length regular episodes, niche and deep dive episodes, trivia episodes. There's so many things. So many, so many good things over there if you like the show. And uh, yeah, if, if you only ever listen to it on iTunes or Spotify or whatnot, then you've only really heard half the show. So head on over there, throw us a few bucks, and you can listen to a whole bunch more. That's true. Quit fucking around. <laughs> Come over there, throw us a few bucks. Even if you only stick around for a month, hmm. you have you you'll have a full month to go through like a hundred different episodes. So, who's being foolish here? You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, we we are banking on your uh, desire to want to know more and or your laziness and not wanting to unsubscribe after. So. Yeah. One of those two things should happen, <laughs> and uh, uh, at least we hope so. And if not, then, you know, fair enough. You gave us a shot. We appreciate it. And also, I will say that for people in the gunslinger tier for December, you are going to get a uh, an extraordinary commentary track in December. I've been, I've, I'm, I'm dying to record this fucking thing. <laughs> We're going to do it like about a week from now. Mm. And uh, I think it's going to be um, the Christmas present that everyone wanted. Mm, indeed we will share more on that once we actually do it but it is going to be one of those super exciting things that everybody's going to want to listen to so yes so yeah so next week uh noah is coming in to talk about salem's lot and then this friday we have zach dion talking about a bunch of stephen king audiobooks for your listening pleasure indeed and with all of that said uh well i guess we're not getting back to the show but we're uh we're ending it so yes. uh we'll see y'all next week all right bye everybody adios the king cast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric vespi that's me and scott wampler tira ansley and abby goel are executive producers 
Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 